Having brilliant people around you is great, but is brilliance enough? Welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. Now, if you've been following On My Walk, you know I've hit one of those dry spells. It's not that I haven't been reading, but it has been challenging to get from the written page to the spoken word. But that is about to change. Recently, I finished making my way through David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. Now, let me give you just a little portion from the inside flap of the dust jacket as it provides the initial summary of what you need to know about this book if you're not familiar with either Halberstam or this particular work of his. Here's what it says. This is the story of what happened when the best and the brightest men in the country came to Washington to serve the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and exercised or failed to exercise their power in office. Okay, since I have a whopping 19 episodes lined up from this book, let me give you the briefest introductions to the author. And I'll work to sprinkle in more details about Halberstam as I share more of my aha moments from this book. So Halberstam was a a self-described square from the 50s. That's the New Yorker back from 2007, uh, who became a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist in the early 60s for his reporting on the Vietnam War. Now, he went on to become the best-selling author of more than 20 meticulously researched books. And sadly, Halberstam died in a car accident in 2007 on his way to do research for another book. He was in his early 70s. Now, The Best and Brightest is just shy of 700 pages. And in my humble opinion, this book is a must-read, period. A must-read to better understand the Vietnam War, to better understand Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, to better understand leadership and its consequences when done both exceptionally well and when done poorly. Now, one of the great features of the best and the brightest are the brief but oh-so-thorough biographies or portraits of the Kennedy men, JFK's leadership team, also known as the Whiz Kids who became the Johnson men after JFK's assassination. And I'm talking about Robert McNamara, McGeorge Bundy, William P. Bundy, Dean Rust, George Ball, General William Westmoreland, General Maxwell Taylor, people that may not be familiar to us, but as we go through these episodes, they will be and we'll understand why. Now, James McGregor Burns, a political scientist, presidential biography, and an early expert on the subject of leadership was just a bit miffed over all the attention and notoriety JFK garnered in the press. And you can tell by what I'll share in just a minute that he felt all this talk about JFK back in the early 60s was overdone. So in the spring of 1961, Burns, writing in the New Republic, says, was more than a touch of sarcasm and hyperbole. The adjectives tumble over one another. He's not only the handsomest, the best dressed, the most articulate, and graceful as a gazelle, he's omniscient. He swallows and digests whole books in minutes. He confounds experts with his superior knowledge of the field. He's omnipotent. He's Superman. Now, why do I share all this? Because at that point, 
In his introductory pages, Halberstam wants us to understand the caliber of the Kennedy men. Bob McManera, Arthur Schlesinger, Sergeant Shriver, Bill Moyers, General Maxwell Taylor. They were experts. They were highly praised. They were the whiz kids. And then Halberstam devotes a paragraph to the initial impact these individuals had on Lyndon Johnson. Now, LBJ was the vice president that time, and you have to understand that Johnson, he wasn't a particularly well-educated man, though he was incredibly smart and even brilliant himself. But where these individuals were graduates of places like Harvard or like Maxwell Taylor had impressive military credentials, Johnson, he only had a bachelor's degree from the lowly Southwest Texas State Teachers College back in San Marcos, Texas. So Johnson, upon first impressions, was somewhat in awe of these men. And he goes back to his mentor, Congressman and Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, to tell Mr. Sam how impressed he was with the brilliance of these whiz kids. And Rayburn, never one short on opinions, had a very insightful comment for Lyndon Johnson that I think everyone in leadership ought to hear. Listen to this. It was an extraordinary confluence of time and men, and many people in the know quoted Lyndon Johnson's reaction to them at the first cabinet meeting. He, the outsider, like us, looked at them with a certain awe, which was no wonder, since they had forgotten to invite him to the meeting, and only at the last minute, when the others were arriving, did someone remember the vice president, and a desperate telephone search went on to find him. They were all so glamorous and bright that it was hard to tell who was the most brilliant, but the one who impressed him the most was the fellow from Ford with the stake-home on his hair. The fellow from Ford with the stake-home on his hair. A terrific line, because it once again delineated Johnson, who, vice president or no, seemed more a part of the Eisenhower era than this one. What was not so widely quoted in Washington which was a shame because it was a far more prophetic comment, was the reaction of Lyndon's great friend Sam Rayburn to Johnson's enthusiasm about the new men. Stunned by their glamour and intellect, he had rushed back to tell Rayburn, his great and crafty mentor, about them, about how brilliant each was, that fellow Bundy from Harvard, Rusk from Rockefeller, McNamara from Ford. On he went, naming them all. Well, Lyndon, you may be right, and they may be every bit as intelligent as you say, said Rayburn, but I'd feel a whole lot better about them if just one of them had run for sheriff once. But I'd feel a whole lot better about them, Lyndon, if just one of them had run for sheriff once. Now that was my aha moment. Sam Rayburn knew that there was a big difference between smarts and experience between book knowledge and street knowledge, between being handed a governmental responsibility and having to earn that responsibility by running for public office. Rayburn knew that there was a marked difference between the first chair and the second chair. You see, to sit in the second chair of leadership is to carry out a degree of responsibility, often even a very large degree of responsibility, but under the ultimate leader, in this case, JFK, 
who sat in the first chair. But to sit in the first chair is to take the ultimate ownership for the responsibility. In other words, Rayburn knew that running for office and holding office had a way of helping someone wise up. The ups and downs of leading, having a way of shaking out some of the hubris inside of us. And well, he didn't doubt the brilliance of the likes of Bob McManera or McGeorge Bundy, Rayburn knew that experience, and we got to hear this, that experience, tested experience, was the other side of brilliance. And it was just as important, maybe even more important, than all that book knowledge. I'm thinking right now of the words of Steve Brown. Brown uh, is a former pastor. He's an author. He's a seminary professor, and, and he was the founder of Key Life, a Bible teaching ministry. Steve Brown is a wise dude. And Steve said, I used to say to students when they got all arrogant and self-righteous, listen, you haven't lived long enough or sinned big enough to even have an opinion on that. <laughs> I love that. In other words, you've got all that brilliant book knowledge, but it has yet to be sifted through the sieve of life experience. And tested experience is the other side of brilliance. That's why many jobs want to see X number of years of experience. Because when one is led for, say, three years or five years or seven years, that individual has experienced the ups and downs and ups and downs and ups of leadership. And that kind of experience has the way of making one wiser and better fit for leadership. So what? I hear you saying, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you talking, guy. So what? Here's the so what. So value brilliance but don't fall under the spell of brilliance. Halberstam is going to show us that these brilliant men, and they were, led us into some terrible decisions that impacted the lives of hundreds of thousands of soldiers and millions of Americans. Brilliance alone is not enough. It needs to be hitched to experience. So, so value brilliance, but put brilliance to the test. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. In other words, yes, that brilliant argument needs to be put to the test. Those assumptions need to be put to the test. Those convincing facts and figures need to be put to the test. And as we'll hear, JFK's brilliant men were often not put to the test as they should have been. Their words were taken at face value. So value brilliance, but value equally, if not more, the woman or man who's had to earn his or her office, who may not be as smart, but has led from the first chair. In other words, they've been there and done that over years because there's something in that tested leadership that you probably won't find in that man or woman standing on the stage pontificating from brilliance without the concomitant experience. Well, Lyndon, you may be right. And they may be every bit as intelligent as you say, 
but I'd feel a whole lot better about them if just one of them had run for sheriff once. Hey, brilliance is great. Seek it. Leverage it. But experience, proven experience, experience that has been earned, demonstrated, and tested, especially from the first chair, that is the other side of brilliance. So when it comes to my life and leadership, I want to make sure brilliance walks hand in hand with experience. And that's my thought on my walk with David Halberstam and the best and the brightest. My question for you is, what will you do with that thought on your walk through life today?